Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, and behavior change scientist. I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and life coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, in this bonus episode, I'm learning about reimagining power in corporate America in a healthy way with speaker, leader, and author Deepa Pershman. I wanted to speak with Deepa because I heard her talk with Ra Goddess at TED Women 2021. The talk emphasized the strength of women of color and mentioned specific research their organization and formation had done. The two women on stage were so powerful. Afterwards, I downloaded the report and really appreciated it because it focused on the different experiences of women of color at work. I connected with Deepa on LinkedIn and saw her promotion of her book, The First, The Few, The Only. I was honored to be sent a pre-publication copy to read and to be part of Deepa's book launch. As you'll hear in our conversation, burnout and healthy power are central to her work. You can find key takeaways on the episode website, drjacquelinecurr.com. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi, everybody. I'm Deepa Prashan. I live in California with my three dogs and my husband. When I'm not writing or cooking, you'll find me doing home projects. And I am the co-founder of Information, and I have written a new book called The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Reimagine Power in Corporate America. Thank you so much for your time today, Deepa. I know you've got a busy schedule with the book coming out. So thanks so much for coming and speaking to my listeners here. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So first, please briefly describe your journey to where you are now in your career. Absolutely. I spent 20 years rising in corporate America. I was at Deloitte and I made the partner level there. I was our first Indian American woman to do so. And that's only important because we're going to talk about later what that meant and what that brought with it. I left uh, corporate America a year and a half ago. So I left during the pandemic to start my own company and to write and to focus all of my work on helping women and women of color find their power. And it's exciting. It's also very new. And I spent my majority of my career in one company. And so this is a very different experience now. That's great. And I'm excited to hear about that change in terms of how it changed potentially even your strategies around the work you're doing. But first, one of the things I love learning about you was that you wrote an obituary to your job. And I ran out of my job with my hair on fire. And I think if I had taken time to do this, it may have really helped with my healing. So tell us about why you did that, what you said, and just the process, how it helped you. Absolutely. And I love that you started with that. Because by the way, it's also something that I ask a lot of women to do now, as everyone is contemplating where they sit in COVID and the work that they want to do in the world. And we're all balancing so many competing demands and trying to make life work. I actually find that the process of sitting and really, what would you do if you didn't do this job? What would you do if you could write a life that you want to write? What would you do if you wanted to end this chapter of what you are doing? Writing those kinds 
kinds of things in the format of a work obituary can be really helpful. On the side, it's an exercise I really recommend that people think about. I called it that. It was my letter of resignation, simply put. I I think most of us do letters of resignation. Mine felt a little bit more complicated because I had been at one company for 20 years and because I had fought so hard and risen challengingly to get to the partnership. It was something that I really had desired. And to get there and to sit in the seat and to walk away from it once you've sacrificed so much to get to this destination was a really fascinating process. I also called it my work obituary because it felt like my entire identity. So for me, I went to Deloitte right after grad school. I had done double master's programs back to back. I was really young when I entered. And here I was leaving in my 40s as a very different person. And my entire identity, I feel like at that time, had you know grown up within the company. I'd found my voice there. I married another partner from the firm who we both since left. But it felt like my whole life was there. And so in some ways, I knew once I left... Some of the relationships, the friendships, like a, a lot of my personal and, and work life were mixed together. That all would really change for me. And so it felt like a very heavy process. And like I was saying goodbye to something and all I knew. And so that's why I call it a work obituary. I think for a lot of us, work has taken up a really big space in our life. And I really had tied it to success and worth and a lot of things. And I was in a process at the point I was writing it where I was asking different questions of what I wanted for my life and myself. I think that's such a helpful process. And having also left a career that I chose that I trained for many years in public health and a career that was so much part of my identity, I definitely experienced that loss of identity And I really like how you have definitely more emotional intelligence than me because you knew it the feelings that you were likely to have. I think for me, it happened afterwards. And then I was like, oh my God, I've lost it all. And so that was part of my journey is is to reverse back into it. But I I think it's so important for us to realize that it will have an uh, impact on how our identity uh, feels. And so it's great to prepare it's interesting that you felt it afterwards. Yeah. I I think for me, it was more fear. I was just scared of going to something new, something unknown. I wasn't leaving to another job that was clearly defined. I was going to start my own thing and maybe write a book at the time. And so it felt a little bit more amorphous. I also think, and I'd be curious if this happened for you as well, but for me, there was a lot of, and I didn't know it at the time. I think there was some shame around the fact that work was my whole, whole identity. And Although I was successful, I think people would look at me and say, that's great, but what else do you have? Or what else do you do? Or what else do you want? And I think I was sorting through that. And so for me, the process was maybe a little bit asking those bigger questions because it was a pretty painful process to realize it was such a big part of my life. Yes, totally. I experienced that feeling of shame in two levels. (laughs) So one, I was a professor And I no longer could say I was a professor. And I realized I I was so ashamed of being tied to a title in that way. And also, I don't know if the word is um, hubris. There was a lot of ego in there. And that was definitely part of the value conflict that I think I experienced because in academia, for sure, it's so egocentric and ego driven and is designed to be in some ways. And that's where I always struggled because I was trying to do work for my community. I was trying to help my research group, but yet the way for me to succeed was to focus entirely on my own career and productivity. So I I was trained to to be like that, but yeah, there was so much shame and yes, a lot of fear of, of, 
what next? I transitioned into a consulting role using the the skills that I had developed in academia. So in terms of I had something to go to, but didn't know what that was going to look like long term. So yeah, my biggest fear actually came later um, when I decided I wanted to address working mum burnout, but was afraid to add my voice to this space, especially on social media. But I think the, the thing was similar to what you described is you've worked so hard to get to this table. And then when you get there, you're too tired <laughs> to actually to appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about that experience that you had in terms of experiencing burnout and, and the way you've described it too, is that your superpower was working harder than everyone else around you. Oh my goodness, I can relate to that. But also you describe your body having a tantrum. And I was just editing one of my other podcasts and those were exactly the words the lady used. She said, your body has a tantrum. So that really stood out to me. Yeah, absolutely. And so my story was I worked really hard and I think I made all my milestones very quickly. I was on every fast track and every short list you can imagine. I, I was very successful even within the very, very specific role I was in. So even within the partnership, I was moving very quickly. And I don't know that I ever looked at the cost of that, if that makes sense. Like there's a trade-off. Like I lived out of a suitcase. I sometimes did three cities a week. I hardly ever slept in my own bed towards the tail end of my career because I was always traveling. You don't eat well when you're on the road. You don't sleep well. I exercise when I could. And so I think that my focus and how I gauged success, because I outwardly, I looked, you know, healthy. I didn't have those kinds of issues or I didn't necessarily have some immediate health challenge that was pushing me. I just kept pushing myself because I could. A lot of how you're trained in jobs like this that are high performance jobs that you're an elite athlete almost is the training that I got. And so you learn how to modulate what you need your sleep, your eating, right? To perform better. And so I had all of that in mind and I think it never really struck me until it was too late, until my body was having the tantrum, what was happening. And so for me, what happened is I started to get sick and it started as small things. And over the course of three or four years, the, the issue started to grow. The first thing was headaches and then skin rash then it slowly moved into stomach pains. And then over the next couple of years, I was sick literally every two weeks that turned into something. And then even before 40, I came down with shingles, which is a little bit unusual in the ways that I got it in extreme nature that I got it. And so it was like this growing list of things. And then eventually I started to have really bad neuropathy in my hands and feet. And so it was a pins and needles all the time. I saw 15 doctors over the course of the two years where the issues were escalating. It's fascinating because I've, I've, I've I think a lot of women of color and a lot of women get told this. I was told, well, you're just aging. It's the aging process. And I was like, that's not the aging process. Something is happening to me. And the issues really started to get worse and worse. And the more doctors I saw, the more they couldn't figure out what was happening. In the end, I did hundreds and hundreds of tests because I kept pushing, like I knew something wasn't right. I ended up getting a late stage Lyme diagnosis. I probably had it from childhood, but it was triggered as I was really considering leaving my career. I had just sold the biggest project of my career. I was doing 20 hour days. Like it was a very intense period of my life. And I think that probably really is what started some of the issues and, and the next level of manifestation of my symptoms. 
But I think it's an important conversation because I think as women and women of color, especially, I, I was trained that we don't get opportunities like this. We don't get those seats at the table. And so when I was successful or I got more, I felt really obliged to perform. I felt obliged to push myself to be successful, not just for myself, but for everyone around me and everyone behind me. And I think sometimes that came at the cost of what was good for me and what was healthy for me. And I think for a long time, that was a badge of honor. Like almost if you think back to college and I remember used to always talk to my roommates, oh, did you sleep tonight? Did you sleep last night? Did you sleep? No, I stayed up all night studying. That's like just a common thing you say. It used to be a little bit of the same thing at work, right? Like how much did you get done? How much did you sleep? It was almost like this unsaid competition of how little you needed to take care of yourself to perform. And I realized that's probably not a good way to live, but I only realized that when it was almost too late, I didn't get so sick that I couldn't recover, but I ended up taking eight months off and spending a lot of time in bed just to try and get healthy and figure out what had happened and to try a lot of alternative healing techniques to come back to health. And I think a lot of what we don't realize is when our bodies are in chronic stress, and so many of us are in that point right now with the pandemic, it really does something to our body. And the last few years, I think for women of color, and even for myself, that the conversations around race and how we're actually admitting that race shows up at work and shows up in other places, I think we're finally feeling our feelings in our body. And as a result, we are having physical manifestations and, and wanting to process all of that energy and all of that discontent in certain ways. And so I think that's what's showing up. And that's what showed up for me, but I didn't know it at the time. Yes. And there's so many pieces in there as well, in terms of looking for support from a medical system where there are fewer and fewer women of color who are doing research on women's health issues. That's one of the things I learned in my process of leaving, how little understanding we have of women's health issues because there are not women researchers staying because we burned out. And that's definitely also the, the case for women of color in research or women of color physicians. So it's very hard when you do then try to get answers to these questions, that it's in a medical model that is not informed by the, the realities of daily life. So yeah, that's interesting to me. And I can relate to the shingles. <laughs> I got it when I was finishing university. Because again, I think I just wasn't um, looking after myself and I had put myself in this stressful situation. I should have maybe learned from it back then. We were not told to, right? You were young, you got it. It's unusual, move on. But yeah, I think these are all symptoms. I used to watch a lot of Oprah growing up. This is not her exact saying, but something along the lines of you'll get a pebble thrown at you and then you'll get a rock thrown at you and eventually a boulder will come down the hill if you're not paying attention to what the universe is telling you. And I think it's the same with our bodies, but there's so much misinformation or there's so much confusion out there about not paying attention to what our bodies are telling us. That performance trumps taking care of ourselves or listening to ourselves. And I think that's a lot of what my message is now is that we know when we're pushing hard, but we live in a society where we're rewarded for ignoring it. And I think as women and women of color, we can't do that anymore. So I find that many people don't realize they're, they're burned out. And at the time I didn't, it was really in reading about it afterwards that I did. 
um, learned that was probably what I was experiencing. And I think also in the descriptions, because I think sometimes those words are other things that somebody can relate to. But I feel like often women of color are not included in the descriptions of burnout. So could you please describe some of the experiences you've seen in women of color so they can see themselves reflected, but also anything that you think is contributing to that that would help them also understand why they're experiencing it differently? Absolutely. So we did some research with the Billie Jean King Leadership Initiative, my company, Information, and my partner, Ron and I. And one of the lines in that research that came out in the fall, and we just had a TED Talk come out around it uh, just recently, is that women are burnt out and women of color are traumatized. And I think we're trying to put different language to the experience. So I think we're in a moment right now where everyone is burnt out, right? There's so many competing demands. Work is bleeding into all parts of our life. Zoom starts at 7 a.m. for some of us and goes into 7 p.m., if not longer. There's just, there's not the, the historical break between work and life and having to manage everything, right? Moms and not having school in a lot of cases for years and having to manage all these things that have made it really difficult to do our work. So I think when I describe burnout, I think it's overwork, it's competing priorities, it's the bleed that happens. I think when I think of women of color and trauma and what's happening right now is that because on top of all of that conversation, all of that struggle, there is a, I don't want to say a new, but there's almost a permission to talk about race in a very different way. I think most women of color would tell you that racism always existed, but we weren't encouraged to talk about it. And there was a lot of denial that it was happening. One of the main points of my book is that corporate America is not a meritocracy. It does show up differently for different of us. And it's okay to talk about that because if we don't talk about it, we can't change it. I think what I'm seeing with the women of color I met, and I interviewed over 500 women of color to write the book, is that they are facing such a high level of microaggressions, of racism, of feeling like they don't belong, of having really unrealistic expectations put on them, of extra jobs and extra culture building activities they're taking on. And I have a list of 12 things, but those are just a few. All these extra things that they're not paid for and not part of the job description, and there's never been space to talk about before. And I think that's important because part of what I'm also realizing in my work is there is a, a body of work to name it. And then there's a body of work to process it and feel it and let it go from your body. And that's a lot of what I think causes trauma and causes illness. But the most surprising thing I found in my research of these 500 women is almost all of them were sick. And they weren't these a clear diagnoses like cancer. They were diagnoses like skin rashes, stomach pains, headaches, fertility issues. They were these issues, these issues that when they would go to the doctor, they would say maybe they're stress related or they're age related. They would be dismissed. And these women were really suffering. And I think a lot of it comes down to being in structures where they don't feel fully seen and heard. And as a result of that, their bodies are acting up and telling them they don't belong there, similar to what mine did, but we don't talk about that. So I think that's the difference. I think we're at a state where everyone is burnt out. I don't even know what the state beyond burnt out is, but I think we're all there with everything we're balancing. But I think what I'm seeing with the women of color, because of the microaggressions, because of the racism, because of the extra work, because of the inequities that exist in the system around pay and promotion, all the other things, there's a different level that is until now been unseen or not talked about that we're finally starting to talk about. And as a result, I think we're feeling different feelings and historical feelings that we've never been able to feel. And, and that's going to be challenging as well in terms of 
feeling comfortable in the workspace to even have those conversations or share those feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I I loved getting to read your book in advance. I felt so privileged to be able to do that. And by the way, in reading it, I now have this whole new reading list. I love reading. So reading your book and seeing all these books that I, I hadn't been on my radar before, I was like, thank you. I've got a new reading list. So I'm so excited. I love learning through books. So tell me what messages in your book are likely to have the greatest impact, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question because when I wrote the book and until very recently, I thought I was writing the book for women of color. I wanted to write a book that I hadn't seen growing up in America and growing up in corporate spaces. And I wanted to have the book that I wish I had when I was younger. And so I was very intentional about writing it for women of color. It's in our voice. It tells our stories. I didn't tell 10 stories of women of color. Literally, there's hundreds of stories in the book. And I really tried to show the variety of women of color and what we're facing. And so it's been fascinating because so far the early feedback is that it's really landing for non-women of color in a very deep way. And I'm excited by that. And I'm talking about it and I'm excited to do work in that space, but I wasn't sure it would, and that wasn't who I had in mind when I was writing it. So that's been surprising and amazing. And what I'm hearing is it's one of the first books where people are seeing and feeling the weight of what it is like to be a woman of color because of the volume of stories. And so I have white male leaders who said, I've always thought I was a great ally, or I always thought I was really being helpful to women of color. This book has made me realize there's things that I just have never even understood where maybe I'm not being as proactive as I thought I was. And so that's really been surprising to me and exciting in a very unexpected sort of way. And I I agree with that too, as a white woman reading it. I remember you started out by saying you hope that white people would have more empathy in reading these stories. But I I agree that there's such power in stories. And and for me, the hearing the differences in the healing process and the power that people could draw on from their heritage as well. For me, it, it did show the strength of women of color. And I know that was something as well, a message that you were really conveying in your TED talk in terms of we're missing out on this strength. We're missing out on this creativity and innovation that women of color had. I also just appreciated the depth with which you did it. But also I think, yeah, there was such a range of stories that it really did paint a a, a really more complex, bigger picture for me of the challenges of women of color. So I, I definitely found that helpful. But also what actions do you want white allies to take? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that since I've got some of this early feedback on who's showing up. I'm not going to give you two or three quick tips. That's not my work. I think there's a lot of wonderful people who talk about interventions in the moment. I think what I'm really trying to show in my takeaway or my ask of white allies who I call co-conspirators is I, I need us to not be bystanders anymore, that we all have to lean into changing the system. But I think the first, and it's what I shared a little bit earlier, is really doing the work to understand that the system is not a meritocracy. And it's hearing the stories and being open to the experiences are different. Because if we continue to believe the system is neutral or shows up the same for all of us, there's no reason to change it. So I think that's probably number one. And understanding what's different for us is really part of that process. 
I think the other thing I would say is don't put all of the work on women of color. And so much of what I hear from women of color is that if someone says something inappropriate or something is happening in a room or even on Zoom, everyone looks at the woman of color to correct or looks at the person who the infraction lands on to correct. And I I think it's all of our work. So doing more practice to realize like what you can say and do in a moment when someone says something that is probably not appropriate or may even be racist is your work too. So I tell women of color practice what you're going to say when someone says something racist, because it will absolutely happen to you. But I think what I'm realizing is I want allies to do the same because you're going to be in the same experience. So what are you going to say? Cause it's not easy. And so how are you going to really step in and not be that bystander, but really take action. So I think that's where I would focus the work and energy. Yeah. And I appreciate that because it's not a a two sentence answer to any of these complex issues. So I I do appreciate you at least calling out some of those things in the time we have. And I think the practice is super important as a behavior change scientist. That's what we have to do. That's why these like one-time trainings don't work. You have to develop the skills and to develop the skills, you have to keep trying them and get feedback on whether you're doing them, you know, in an effective way and continue to do them. So either within yourself, you're doing that or with with friends and colleagues to guide you. So I think the practice is so important, but also the system. So I'm really glad you, you mentioned that because that was really my public health background has always been about understanding how systems influence our health and, and that that's why we see so many health disparities. As a public health person, that's one of the first things we learn about is the systems that create health disparities. So when I came into this burnout arena after my own burnout, that was the first thing that I started to think about was this is likely to be a systemic issue. But as a woman, I hadn't appreciated that all the things that potentially were bias in the workplace I had assumed it was my fault. And so even though I was aware of how systems work and had worked to change systems, I just assumed it was me. And then as I started to read about the systems that affect women, that affect women of color, that affect also mothers differently and mothers of color in particular differently, I started to go, okay, yes, this is why we do burn out. It's because the inequalities in the system and those things, lack of reward, lack of promotion, injustice, those are all things that lead to burnout. And those are all things that are baked into the the system. I love that you point that out. When people ask me, how is the book different? Or how would you describe the book at at a very 10,000 foot level, especially in academic circles? What I say is, I'm talking about work that company cultures have to do and also the structure and the structure part to your point is a part we don't talk about because we just leave it as this agnostic sort of system or structure that doesn't have any impact. And what I'm saying is to your point, we have to look at that. We have to really talk about that. And that's where the harder work is. And until very recently, you couldn't talk about corporate America and its flaws that wasn't allowed. And so now that we're maybe having permission to talk about it, I think this is one of the first books that's laying out the flaws and asking us to, you know, reconsider and reimagine. And I'd also add that although my book is about women of color, I think the concepts in it and the the struggles we're having around work pertain to women and mothers and even a lot of the white men that are my peers. I think it's also generational. I think people my aging younger want different out of work and the system doesn't allow for that. So how do we reimagine the structure, the system? So it, it makes sense for all of us. We're working to make our lives work, but we've ended up in a system where we're making our lives 
fit our work. And that feels really opposite or backwards. To me. And you mentioned uh, research. And one of the analogies that I love in, in your book is about design. So women can't put their suitcases up in an airplane um, locker because it wasn't designed for a, a shorter frame. And again, that just makes our lives more challenging. And so one of the, the roles that I, I have seen that you have and that I was also very excited about was that you're also a women and public policy program leader in practice at Harvard Kennedy School and tying that to design. The head of that school has written books about how do we change through design inequalities in, in workplaces. So I was just so excited that you're part of that school. So tell me a little bit, if you can, about some of the research you're involved in there. Yeah, so the research is a lot of what became the basis for the book and the case studies that I showcase in the book. I recently did a paper with a few other professors on women of color in negotiation. So taking the stories that I have and applying them to a traditional negotiation framework um, and how negotiation is different for women and different for women of color and that the system doesn't always reward us for negotiating. So what are we really asking for and how do we make our asks in a more thoughtful way because we have to. And so that's the space that my research is falling under right now. And I'm excited to continue. I think that there's a lot to look at around system design. The story that you're referring to, and it's one of my favorites, it's actually the first story in the first chapter, is I sat down with Renee Myers, who's the um, VP of inclusion at Netflix. And we started talking about inclusion and like, why are, do women of color not feel like they belong in companies? And she ended up, you know, taking me on a path of talking about airplane design. And she was sharing airplanes weren't designed for women. She was saying as a mom, she really struggles with the idea that the suitcases go above our head. And when she had younger children, like that was a real stressful moment for her. Like, what if the bins open and the suitcases fall in her children's head? And I was saying, I'm five one, right? So for me, getting the suitcase to the overhead when I used to do three cities a week was a really stressful process. And then we were talking about how maybe a white man sitting next to us who's 5'10 and taller and doesn't have his kids with him is traveling for work will have a completely different experience on the plane. And the plane is probably more designed for his experience and his needs. And so it was just a really fascinating story on how design impacts our experiences, but even in, but, or maybe taller, but a taller woman is very different than my own, even though we're both women of color. And I think there's so much nuance to that. And that's where we need to understand how just like the airplane, the workplace is experienced differently by all of us. Even if we may share some characteristics, others will show up differently. And we need to understand and talk about that if we're going to make it work for everybody. So one of the things in your transformation from moving to Deloitte to information is leaving this long career. And yet we do want to have systems change. And I know that um, sometimes we do have more influence outside of the system to be able to go back in and see it, even if part of that process is simply we value ourselves more once we've left it. But but what about the women who do stay? And I think one of the lines you had in your book that I found was so striking is that staying is protest as well. So for the women that do stay, what do they need to help them succeed? Obviously, they're going to continue to face challenges. When somebody is making that decision to stay or doesn't have the choice if their family circumstance doesn't give them the flexibility 
to make a change at that moment in time? What can help them stay and succeed? Yeah, there's so much to to answer in that question. The book came out of this process where I was knee deep in figuring out, should I stay or go? I knew my health was failing me, but what else do I do? And I started meeting with women of color that eventually turned into 10 dinners across the country. And I met 300 women of color all prior to COVID. And that became the basis for the company and the book as I realized that I wasn't alone and my experiences were shared. Um, But so much of the struggle, I think, for moms right now and for women of color is staying in these structures that don't see and hear them, that don't work for us. My agent looked at me early on and said, you're not writing a book telling everyone to leave, are you? Because that's going to be a really hard book to sell. (laughs) And no, I'm not asking everyone to leave, but I'm asking us to have greater consciousness of if we choose to stay, how we stay and where we stay. And I think one of the things that I really have learned in the negotiation work that I've done and now in, you know, interviewing all these women of color is that we're really taught to stay longer than we should as a group and women probably as well. We're taught to stay because you got the seat at the table or you should be thankful that there's an opportunity for you. A lot of immigrant women are taught culturally security and stability. Our families sacrifice so much for us to get here. Like we have to honor the seat, not make waves or be noisy. And so all of those things play into it. So what I'm asking women of color and even women to do is just really look around. Not every company is women of color friendly or women friendly or mom friendly. And it's okay to make choices on that. It's okay to ask different questions. Sometimes you might not be able to because the paycheck is important or there's other reasons why you stay. But what I have in the book, and you know, I'll be honest, I didn't want to write this chapter, but I did, is how do you play the game while you change the game? And I didn't want to write that because I feel like there's so many books on how you play the game. And my whole idea and why the word power is in the title and there's a theme of power throughout the book is I don't think ideas on power work for us, right? As women and women of color, they've been defined by white men who've come before us. And I think it's time we really think about agency and power and success differently is very much like a strong theme in the book. But I also realize that some of us have to stay in the system if we're going to change it. And I think what I'm telling women to do is to be smart about that, is to be protective of their health as they do that, to find allies as they do that, that this work is really lonely. And so find your sisters or your mom groups or your other places where you can find sanity while you are navigating these structures and realize how it shows up for you. So in the book, in that chapter, I do go through learn, earn, and return phase. I think there's different phases of our career and there's different needs and different things we have to do in each of those phases. And I lay them out, but overall, I'm also giving us permission to know when it's too much and to take care of ourselves, whether that means taking a break, whether that means stepping back or whether that means walking away. And it's really having that sort of conversation because what I'm finding is women are, are burnt out and women of color are traumatized, but I think we're in some cases stuck in that peace because we don't know what to do next. And we're also scared wherever we go next is going to be the same. So it's really thinking through that process and asking new questions so we can maybe find the few places where it'll be better, hopefully for us. I think that's a wonderful way of laying it out. And and I appreciated that section on staying and playing the game. I, I think it's important that we're more conscious of it so that we can take action. Um, Again, in my situation, I was not really understanding the game as well as I could have done. And I must say, as you talk about power in, in your book and what's different about your book, to be honest, what came across for me And again, maybe it's because of my lens and reading of it, but I I do think it's different, is that you have redefined power in the context of health 
and healing and having strength from your own health and healing. So to me, that is a definition of power that is certainly not out there. I love that. Thank you. I think I stepped into that realization and there's a phrase, it's a Sanskrit phrase in the book where I talk about true health as stepping into your own. And I think those ideas have been separated for so long. And how can we be successful if we're not healthy, if we're not feeling burnt out, if we're not happy? And I think that's really the, the connection that I'm trying to make. And so I appreciate you calling that out. How can you be in your power if you're not happy and if you're ill, right? I sat in a seat of power, but I was struggling. <laughs> that's probably not real power. And if sitting in the seat is what we define as power, my whole point is I think that <laughs> the definition is broken. But I'm actually really glad that you've led with power because I think that will make the book so attractive. I'm sure everyone's so burnt out of burnout that I'm so glad you're leading with power because I, I think that's really what's so hopeful. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because obviously you've been in this new role just in the last year and a half, but how has your strategy to DEI change from Deloitte to information? If you think about like the playbook you might've had before within that company versus the playbook that you're using for your mission now, what has changed for you in your thinking? And what now do you see some of the key behaviors that you think have to change to have this bigger impact even? Yeah, I think the thing that's changed at the really conceptual level is I was using other people's playbooks because when you're in a company or when you're in a culture, their definition of success becomes what you strive towards. So making the promotion or getting the raise or you know getting a new title or a new job responsibility, which were all part of like how people were rewarded in, in my old job became important to me. I think in my new work, I've really done a lot of work for myself and which is why now I can help other women do it for themselves is really figuring out for ourselves what's important, right? What makes you feel healthy? What makes you feel successful? And that new playbook is what I'm bringing to the women I work with and the conversations we're having in community. Because I think if we strive towards that old definition or the playbook that has been handed to us, it's not our playbook. And I say that our as I don't think it works for most women, let alone women of color. And so I think that's really the big difference is, is deciding for yourself. This book is really about sitting with yourself and asking what's important to me. How do I want to show up? What's the space that work takes in my life? What are the messages I got from childhood about how I should work and what was important and what was worthy about me? And do they still work for me? And how do I ask new questions for myself? And so I think that's really what's different is someone else's playbook, the company's playbook versus my own. And we're not taught how to do that. And I think that's really where we need women to step into. I love that idea. <laughs> One recognizing you were handed a playbook that you didn't write and you were performing it. And two, thinking about writing your own playbook. It, it just sounds, it, it sounds possible. That sounds possible because sometimes we think about missions and they sound so large and, and, and untenable and hard to actually unpack and say, what does that mean if I want to change the world? But writing a playbook sounds like something that's doable. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But I also think it comes back to that idea of the structure giving us the playbook and realizing we don't have to take that. And that's like the most important part, but that's the part that we're missing. <laughs> exactly. So I like to end with a behavior change, a real clear recommendation for either working moms or companies or for something that you think they can start today so that they can go away and say, okay, yes, I could try that today. 
So there's something in the book, just because we talk so much about health, I'll focus on this, where I tell women of color, and, and then I'll extract it to moms and to all women, I tell them to listen to their gut. I think we know when we're in situations that are uncomfortable, or someone has said something inappropriate. But I think as women and women of color, we're often taught to ignore that feeling, just let it go, or it's not really that bad. And so maybe my biggest lesson is if you get queasy, if all of a sudden you get flushed, if something happens in a moment, and it's not sitting right with you, I have this rule where if it goes more than a, you know, 15 minutes, I usually make myself say something because I know I'm going to ruminate over it for the rest of the day. And I think that applies to, to moms and, and women. If something is just said, or you're asked to do something or something violates your boundary, you don't have to respond in the first 30 seconds, but if you sit with it for a few minutes and you'll figure out if that's five or 10 minutes or an hour or a day for you, but it's really listening to that because we know we have such great intuition and somehow in business, we've been taught that intuition is a secondary trait. And I think I'm asking us to bring that back. Moms have that more than anybody. And so let's lean into that and use that and listen to that feeling when it comes up and, and act on it. And I think that's so important also to bring it back into companies, because one of the things things that I found helpful um, when I was going through the lean in fight gender bias cards. One of the examples they gave was when somebody made a comment about a woman being emotional. One way that we can, you know, make a counter statement to that is to say, yes, showing emotions is a sign of emotional intelligence. <laughs> so if we say, yes, understanding what your body's telling you and understanding your instincts is emotional intelligence. And we want that in the workplace. I think it's so important and it will take practice to listen to it. I think it's hard to hear it when we've suppressed it, but it's also then hard to know how to express it. That was something for me when I did have these gut responsive, when I did then try to express what it made me feel, I struggled with that a lot. Definitely had to learn a lot. So just to finish then, is there any other message that you'd like to convey to listeners that I haven't been able to, to touch on yet and that you think will be inspiring or really just as some part of your message that you want to make sure listeners hear? I think the main thing that I want listeners to know is that there is work we all have to do for ourselves, right? Whether you're a woman of color, a mom, a man, whoever you are, parents, there is work that you have to do for yourself to figure out what health and success meaning is for you. And that's the power of me. I think there's also community and conversations you have to have with others if we're going to change structures and really push on bigger concepts, like the role work is going to take in our lives. And that's the power of we. And so I think the thing I'd leave us with is we have to do both of those pieces of work and we have to find community. We have to listen to podcasts like this. We have to find other moms if we're going to really see ourselves, witness our experience, and then move past it, or really ask the structure to change and meet us where we need it to meet us. And it would probably be that message is that the structure work is hard and you need to do the work on you. And then you need to find others to do the work together. Thank you so much for listening today. And please remember to buy Deepa's book, The First the few, the only. Any of her additional resources are on the episode website at drjacquelinecurr.com. I also have a question for you. Does your company recognize the issue of burnout, but you haven't yet found the solutions that work to improve employee well-being and retain talent? 
If you think my approach to burnout could be helpful for your organization, please contact me through LinkedIn or my website. But remember, as a behavior change scientist, I'm satisfied with nothing less than real measurable behavior change, not attitude change or good intentions or good PR. I deliver actionable solutions. As a TEDx and keynote speaker, I can provide an empowering talk to kickstart your efforts and get everyone on the same page because burnout requires individual, organizational, and cultural change. I can provide a strategic plan, target behaviors, and clear steps. If you already have external programs in place, I can provide a behavioral analysis and evaluation to see if they're really working. And if your company is demonstrating that it really cares through meaningful external and internal investments and regular assessments, but you're still struggling to implement policies and changes that have impact, I can help identify the roadblocks and provide a collaborative process to help you all make progress. My goal is to prevent burnout and empower working mums to keep changing the world. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. You're a fighter Push the limits and see it You're already there Told you we going higher Ain't no stopping us We're going in for the win And we're gonna celebrate Then we're gonna do it all over again And we're gonna rock this place Cause this is our day Feel the power Everything that you